The last time we read from the second chapter of the Gospel of March, Mark, way back in February, Jesus had offended some scribes, experts in Jewish scripture, by forgiving the sins of a paralyzed man. His conflict with Jewish religious leaders, in particular the Pharisees, continued to escalate throughout this second chapter and beyond. They question Jesus when he eats dinner with tax collectors and other so-called sinners, and when they learn that his disciples are not participating in the tradition of fasting. They also question Jesus when they see his disciples pluck and eat heads of grain while walking through the fields on a Sabbath day. While we might wonder at the audacity of the disciples eating someone else's grain, the Pharisees are upset for a very different reason. In their eyes, the plucking of grain heads was essentially reaping, labor that was strictly forbidden on the Sabbath. And here I need to stop and talk a little bit about the Sabbath. Observing Sabbath on the seventh day of the week was and is a central tenet of Judaism. This practice has its origins in the second chapter of the Bible when God takes a break after creating the cosmos and all of its creatures. Genesis 2 verses 2 through 3 reads, And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Keeping the Sabbath became an important Jewish practice when it was enshrined in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 28 reads, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. The repetition of the Ten Commandments in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy gives a little different reason for keeping the Sabbath. After listing all of the people and animals, including slaves, that should rest on the Sabbath, it reads, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. In other words, the purpose of the Sabbath is twofold, to provide all with a time of rest and renewal and to share God's grace with others. Or as Thomas Long puts it, the Sabbath is about participating in God's rest and God's justice for all. Now over time, strict rules were developed in order to guard the sanctity of the Sabbath observant. And this was not necessarily a bad thing. 
Think about how quick we are to fit in work whenever we can. Today, the Christian Sabbath, Sunday, has become a day to run all the errands and finish all the tasks that we can't fit into our busy workday schedules. Even our children are caught up in this. So many have sports practices and games on Sunday. That being said, this is not the point of these stories, however. As we will see, Jesus is not concerned about blue laws or church attendance here. He's concerned about people and their needs. He's concerned about compassion, not correctness. When the Pharisees complain that the disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, Jesus replies with a bit of sarcasm. What, he says to them, have you never read the story of David when he ate the bread of the presence, which it is unlawful for any but the priest to eat? Of course, they've read the story. They're experts in the scriptures, after all. They know that David, who was to be king, was fleeing from Saul, the previous king, who wanted to kill him. By giving him the sacred bread, the priest not only satisfied the need of David and his companions, but also helped David to fulfill his God-given duty to replace Saul on Israel's throne. In pointing to this story, Matt Skinner writes, Jesus contends that sometimes certain demands of the law are rightly set aside in favor of pursuing greater values or meeting greater needs especially when those greater needs promote a person's well-being and facilitate the arrival of divine blessings. Jesus himself puts it this way, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. The observance of Sabbath is meant to be a blessing, not a burden, a practice that enhances life, not stifles it. If Jesus had stopped there, he might have made his point. Everyone knew that the Sabbath was God's gift. But he goes on to make a startling claim that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, if this upstart rabbi didn't have the attention of the Pharisees before, he has it now. It's almost as if he is deliberately pushing their buttons, trying to provoke them. That impression continues as Jesus and his disciples enter the synagogue for worship. As it happens, on that day, a man with a withered hand is present, an unusable, unhealthy hand. Knowing that the Pharisees are looking for an excuse to accuse him of willfully violating Sabbath law, Jesus dares to call the man forward. Then looking around, he says to the entire congregation, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? They all know the answer. If the purpose of Sabbath is to give life, then healing this man's hand is in keeping with that purpose. Yet the Pharisees, indeed everyone in the room, remain silent, waiting seeing the man with the withered hand not as a human being in need, but as the means by which Jesus will condemn himself. Their hardness of heart angers and grieves Jesus. This man's disability prevents him from doing work and supporting a family. 
It gives him pain and keeps him from participating fully in the life of the community. Restoring him to wholeness is a life-saving act, and Jesus does not hesitate. Stretch out your hand, he tells the man, and as the man does so, his hand is restored to health, and he is given new life. How sad that the Pharisees could not rejoice in the blessing that this man received and in God's grace and mercy. How sad that their commitment to the law, a commitment that is truly commendable, had become so rigid that they lost all sense of compassion. Instead of giving thanks for the miracle that they had witnessed, they rush out to conspire with others to destroy the one who challenges their narrow mindset. The Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. Jesus' intent here is not to put down the religious leaders or to throw out the laws that the Pharisees tried so hard to uphold. God gave laws to the Jewish people and by extension to us to help humankind live well. Laws protect us, give us stability, help us to live in harmony with one another. That's why we're taught to follow them. But as David Lowes points out, as important as the law is, it is and always will be a means to an end, a tool, a mechanism in service to a greater purpose. It is not an end in itself. Following the law is not itself the purpose of the law, and the law is not capable of granting us identity, only helps us to live into the identity of beloved child given to us by God. When law supplants love, when correctness trumps caring, when doing things the right way causes us to turn a blind eye to another's needs or feelings, then we need to think again and ask ourselves if that which is lawful is truly life-giving. Recently, I've heard a number of news reports on the Justice Department's new practice of separating children from their parents when families cross our borders illegally. During the past month, more than 600 children were taken from their parents. I cannot imagine how traumatic that must be for these parents and especially for these children. Yes, this law's practice is lawful, but I cannot see how it is helpful and it is neither compassionate nor life-giving. My heart goes out to those families. Another example might be the laws that allow people to purchase military-grade guns, sometimes without adequate background checks. That kind of freedom is lawful. But given the number of school shootings, I think we need to ask ourselves, is it helpful? Is it life-giving? Let's move closer to home. Right now, the United Methodist Church is preparing for a special session of general conference to deal with laws relating to human sexuality, squabbles, conflicts over which threaten the unity of the church. 
Denying full inclusion to people of faith in the LGBTQ community is currently lawful. But as this conference unfolds, I pray that we will ask ourselves, are these laws compassionate? Do they help us live out our mission as followers of Jesus Christ? Are they life-giving? Jesus' words and actions also lead me to think about the unwritten rules that every church has. You know, the rules about where people can sit, who can use the kitchen, who can serve on committees or start new ministries, what is acceptable and what is not, all those rules that no one spells out but that insiders know, rules that are learned sometimes by painful experience. The question is, are such rules helpful? Are they life-giving? Are they compassionate? And Jesus makes me take a look at myself, too. How many times have I failed to act out of compassion because someone didn't act right or live up to my standards of behavior? How many times has my insistence on doing things my way caused me to hurt another's feelings? What needs have I ignored or rejected because I was too busy promoting my own self-righteousness? How many times have I chosen law over our love? Far too many times, I'm afraid. Blogger Debbie Thomas describes this story as unnerving. She writes, it's a story about Jesus walking through the sacred fields of our lives and plucking away what we hold dear. It's a story about Jesus seeing people we're too holy to notice and healing people we just as well leave sick. It's a story about a category-busting God who would not allow us to cling to anything less bold, daring, scary, exhilarating, or world-altering than love. Out of God's infinite grace and wisdom, God blessed the Sabbath so that we might enjoy rest and renewal and take time to appreciate life and to share our blessings with others. Jesus does not condemn the Pharisees who felt that Sabbath laws needed protection, nor should we. Instead, we need to allow Jesus' words and actions to guide us toward more life-giving, more compassionate practices so that we might learn how to practice, how to live into Sabbath, not just on Sunday, but every day of our lives. Changing laws and attitudes requires persistence and courage. And we may not know what is the best thing to do, which is why we need to trust in God's grace and God's guidance. And we can also trust in this, that the one who healed the man with a withered hand also offers us healing and more. For in him we have received the unfailing promise, it's okay. Listen. In him, we have received the unfailing promise of God's grace and guidance, 
a glad welcome to the table that sustains and strengthens us, and the hope of a never-ending Sabbath of joy to come. Trusting in that promise, I invite you to join me in confessing our struggles and our need of forgiveness. As you feel led, please join Carolyn, who's going to read it, and myself in the prayer of confession that is printed in the bulletin. <laughs> 